Hi, this is Andrew Rimby with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Coming up on Gail Crowther on the rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Well, one of the main aims of the book was to, to, to sort of uh, rescue Plath and Sexton from these really stereotypical, mad, crazy women poet narratives that have become attached to them over the years. And although I think a lot more uh, revision is taking place in recent years, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with Plath, about kind of pulling her away from this woman who was on this inevitable slide to suicide. Nevertheless, in this book, I wanted to highlight a number of things, really, because I think one thing that quite often gets lost with Plath and certainly with Sexton as well, is that they were very, very, very funny women. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited to be joined by my dear friend um, who I met during a Whitman week in New York City in 2019, uh, Kelsey Dufresne. Uh, hi, Kelsey. Hi, Andrew. It's wonderful being here. And it's just wonderful kind of the way that we've been able to maintain contact from New York City and on Zoom too. So it's wonderful. Yeah, well, and you're now on the co-host list, so yes. <laughs> this is not your last time. And we are actually joined here uh, wearing amazing red shoes and red lipstick um, <laughs> with the author Gail Crowther. So hi, Gail, from uh, hi. North England. Yeah, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so we were talking before I hit the record button um, that Kelsey and I digested um, three martini afternoons at the Ritz in two different ways. So I listened to the audio version and mm -hmm. Kelsey read it. And um, Gail, can you talk a little about the performer who um, reads your book or what yes. her name is? Yes, the, um, um, the person who narrated the book is Imani J. Powers. And um, I was sent uh, five sample voices for uh for, for narrating the book and all of them were absolutely fabulous it was really really difficult to choose but um I my first choice was Imani because I I loved her voice and I felt her voice somehow really summed up the almost like the atmosphere of the book really uh, and I just loved her uh, the, the way that she spoke, her, her tempo when she was speaking, and having listened to the audio version of Three Martinez, I'm so delighted with the finished product. Yeah, I'm just curious, were all of the samples um, female-identified voices? Uh, they were all female, yes. Okay, because um, I'm just trying to imagine, <laughs> right, it would take a really different tone if it was read by a male-identified voice. Um I think it would, yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it would work, but I, but I, I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to hear that. Um, yeah. Well, um, I can attest to the audio experience was really powerful. And I know Kelsey and I were saying we took about a week mm -hmm. to di digest uh, your biography, your book, and. Um, I know, Kelsey, can you explain a little, because I know Gail would love to hear about how you almost read in a category type of way. Mm -hmm. So I worked through, I spent working, reading it through after my school day. So I'm in school right now. So I'd come home and read about a chapter every day. And so for me, the materiality was really exciting because the chapters are organized 
in like these really poignant thematic ways. And so that was a very interesting pacing. Like I, I drew on the contents like this arrow because it feels like it's kind of like escalating in a very unique way. And it kind of works perhaps against the lens that is most traditionally associated with these authors. Like the last thing we read about is their death by suicide versus that being the first point through which we meet them. So for me, it was interesting to see like the intentionality of that's chapter eight, that's the last chapter in this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was um, very deliberate. And mm -hmm. I think one of the whole, uh, well, one of the main aims of the book was to, to, to sort of uh, rescue <laughs> Plath and Sexton from these really stereotypical mad crazy women poet narratives that have become attached to them over the years and although I think a lot more uh, revision is taking place in recent years mm -hmm. uh, particularly with Plath about kind of pulling her away from this woman who was on this inevitable slide to suicide nevertheless in this book I wanted to highlight a number of things really because I think one thing that quite often gets lost with Plath and certainly with Sexton as well is that they were very 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 funny women they had fantastic sense of humor and they um their letters are witty uh they, they, just everything about them ma makes me feel quite joyful and makes me laugh and although the way their lives ended was incredibly sad and incredibly heartbreaking and they their lives ended too soon I think it's unfair to read them through that and I think we should as you say as I did with the book read them the other way mm -hmm. around and read their lives and then unfortunately you know we do get to the end of the of their lives in the way that 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 happened uh, but to actually emphasize these were women who loved life Right. And um, had had very, very joyful, happy moments. Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful and empowering to them, like in considering the full, full totality of them as human beings. Um, so it's absolutely incredible. And um, but as you mentioned, both women have kind of been typecasted as like crazy, unwell women. And so for you as this biographer, this scholar of both Plath and Sexton, how have you experienced pushback, if at all, in studying them in this different way? Because it is a very unique way of reading them. And it's a very needed one for sure. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think particularly with, with Plath, that there is this revision taking place as scholarship kind of moves on. And I think a lot of that is to do with the really exciting up and coming younger Plath scholars as well, who, who have encountered Plath at a very different historical moment mm. than perhaps some of us who are, shall we say, a little bit older. And so I think that's quite exciting. And they also bring a slightly different historical feminist reading as well to, to Plath and Sexton. So I find that quite exciting. And I think that all adds and escalates this idea that these are women who need revisiting, they need revising and they need refreshing as well because, you know, obviously, Plath died in the 60s, Sexton died in the 70s. There's been quite a few decades mm -hmm. since their deaths and lots of different narratives have sprung up since that. And it's interesting that quite recently I was speaking to Plath scholar Emily Van Dyne about this and we, we were saying that the biographies that have been written about Plath tell us almost more about the time that they were written in mm -hmm. than they do about Plath herself. And so I'm kind of hoping now that the, the sort of biographies and the sort of work that we're seeing on Plath and Sexton might be uh, a bit more nuanced and a bit more inclusive and take into account that we're in a very different historical moment now as well. Yeah, well, and I just have to say the decision to explore Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath with your subtitle, The Rebellion of Sylvia mm -hmm. Plath and Anne Sexton, really does bring to the forefront that going against the grain of falling into what Kelsey's describing and you're describing, Gail, about the mental health narrative, mapping that directly onto Plath and Sexton's poetry. And I know 
we probably all have faced when we first encountered both poets. I know when I fell for Sylvia Plath, and it was really through Lady Lazarus when I was an undergrad, um, and we went into our poetry unit, uh, that I started to just try to read as much Sylvia Plath as I could, and I was being told by literary professors, not the one who assigned Plath, but um, others. And I said, oh, I can't wait to read The Bell Jar. And I'm so excited about the Ariel collection. And I started listening to her on YouTube because right, the VVC um, productions are on there. And they said, oh, she was a very sad per figure mm -hmm. where she was just a depressed person. I don't like reading depressed poetry. And I thought it was just such a way to collapse everything that's nuanced in Sylvia Plath. And you really, I mean, do such a remarkable job, Gail, of highlighting the nuances in her poetry and the power, right? Like when I hear her speak, mm -hmm. I hear someone who's very in control of how they want their verses phrased. So, um, you know, bravo to just even describing this as a rebellion, I thought was a really great critical framework to work with. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think um, I wanted a biography, and this was mainly because there are already so many existing biographies of Plath, that I wanted a biography that looked at them through a particular lens, uh, and so that I could build a narrative around that lens. And because uh, the two women have always struck me as absolute rebel poets, and, and not just, uh, hopefully, uh, as I hope the book uh, draws out, not just in their writing, but also in how they chose to live their lives as well at the time that they were operating in and all the different ways in which they felt that they could kick back against certain gendered expectations, social expectations, and all the ways in which they felt they couldn't as well, because in so much as they were very rebellious and certainly their, their poems were uh, very unusual and probably quite shocking for the time. Uh, there were still ways in which, you know, they could, they simply could not, I think, completely fight back against certain, particularly patriarchal representations. And I think that's true for all of us, really. You know, none of us can live outside of ideology. None of us can operate outside of the cultural moment we exist in. And although, we can be better at resisting some things than others. I think we still we still absorb some of that. We can't help it. And it was interesting for me to look at the ways in which they absolutely rejected some things mm -hmm. that took so much courage to do, uh, but then in other ways were still kind of sucked in and sucked under by certain expectations. And so I think having this lens of them um, as being rebels and they were operating within a particular environment when they were rebellious. You know, I talk very much about them being, you know, they were white, they were progressive liberals. So that was the, the, the arena that they were operating in. Uh, that, that gave me something to uh, frame, frame the book around, um, but also to have almost the central point, this, meeting in the Ritz with the three Martinis mm -hmm. to kind of spawn off from that as well. Uh, so uh, it was it was an exciting book to plan the structure because uh, I, I was I knew exactly what I wanted to say, but then it was just where is this structure going to go? And so I had a really wonderful time planning it. Yeah. And maybe building off of that question, too, because Andrew and I were super excited about um, the, the genre of the biography here, as well as kind of like this aversion of expectation, because one might consider a dual biography, like especially with Plath, that it would be Plath and Ted Hughes. But here we have Plath and Anne Sexton, which is really wonderful. And I never would have thought that they would have a dual biography together. So could you speak to maybe some of the choices of how that came to be? And just ultimately the, the, results of all of that, what it means to have two female poets in conversation together. There was a slight audio issue. So when Gail mentions Carrie, Carrie is Gail's literary agent. 
text and were both included in, in this um, book that didn't work out. Uh, and at, at some point where we just realised it wasn't going anywhere, Carrie said to me, well, why don't you think about working on Plath and Sexton, something about them together? And immediately then it was like, yes, this is something that I could really get excited about. And so from that, uh, the, the dual biography idea came about. And I very much wanted the focus to be on the two women. And I think, as you say, Plath often gets... Uh, uh, just so strongly associated with Hughes and of course they were married and you know that they were they were married for six years but Plath had more of a life without Hughes than she did with Hughes and quite often that gets overlooked and Andrew Wilson uh, wrote his biography Mad Girls Love Song about Plath's years before she met Ted Hughes but I think I think it's really important to see Plath in her own right as a woman and as a poet and whatever influences she received from Hughes she also equally received influences from other writers as well and one of those was Sexton uh, she was hugely influenced by the way in which Sexton was writing the kind of subject material Sexton was writing about and when I read that they had had these quite rare quite few Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, I became fascinated by this relationship that was so fleeting and that there's very little written about because we simply don't know that much about it. And to think about using that as a central point for, well, what was the end result from this meeting, these mm. two women meeting? And I was so lucky to go to Boston and actually go into the room where Robert Lowell taught his poetry workshop. And this room is really small, it's tiny. I think I talk about this in the book. And you just kind of imagine these huge characters of Platt, Sexton, Lowell, along with 15 of the students crammed into this space. Sexton smoking away and using her shoe as an ashtray, flat sitting with her tight bun and her cardigan, and you just think, oh my goodness, and then sort of thinking about them racing off to the Ritz and downing martinis and how the nature of their conversations probably changed after about the first or second one. And all of, the, all of those things just inspired me really to think this there has to be a, a biography that can be built around all of these things. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite moments in the book is when you wrote that Anne Sexton was wearing so much jewelry that she would try to hold it to make it stop jingling when they would be in class. And it was just such a beautiful humanizing moment. Like it was just amazing because I could I can imagine that. I feel like I have done that. So it was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. And the, the kind of witness accounts of Sexton just turning up late to class and dropping all her books and papers flying everywhere and then sitting down and pulling her shoe off. I mean, she just really was quite a force of nature, I think. Yeah, and you do present such full-bodied um, full experiences, like Kelsey's saying, of imagining, right, the jewelry. I also, just imagining their different teaching styles, like how both were in similar trajectories, but their approaches, and especially the social class, like that Sylvia Plath was, you know, middle class, but not in Anne Sexton's realm of upper class society. But Anne Sexton was actually the one who was the most provocative in her, you know, portrayal, where you would think it would actually be the opposite that, you know, it maybe do you think that Sylvia Plath in a way was just very aware of her uh, performance or aware of like how she was trying to, and I know this is a difficult question, but was she aware probably a lot of the constraint that she, that was put on her, like from her upbringing compared to Anne Sexton's background? Yeah, I mean, I think Probably when it came to, to Plath and teaching, my understanding would be that there were probably a couple of things going on there. Um, firstly, there would have been that Plath went through a very traditional Ivy League education. So there would have been all of 
she would have been carrying all of that with her. Then she came to England and went to Cambridge University. So again, that very traditional style of teaching. But also, I think it's really easy to forget how young Plath was when she went back to teach at Smith College. There were literally a couple of years between her and, and the students. She, she, you know, she only just left two years earlier. And I think there's a particular pressure about going back to the place where you were a student and then suddenly you're now a lecturer there and working with people who you always regarded as you know your your own teachers the people that you when you were at college looked up to and then had as Plath did that moment of disillusionment when you realize these are not these amazingly wonderful untouchable people that humans just like you and me and and all of those people that you held up as gods suddenly fall off their pedestal and you find that they're the men are sort of creepy academics chatting up their students in the coffee room and all you know all of those disappointing things that Plath faced so I think she I think it was difficult for her to go back to the place where she'd studied and suddenly uh, changed her status there but also she was seeing perhaps things through very different eyes as well mm. and all of that coupled with no experience of teaching or lecturing and suddenly the responsibility of being at, at an Ivy League college teaching whereas when Sexton was teaching she was she was much older she had a bit more life experience under her belt and also Sexton I think had a much more uh uh, relaxed, really don't care attitude to Plath. She was in some ways, in some ways, and I think that she was quite, um, I mean, she was very nervous about lots of things. Sexton would get terrible stage fright before uh, doing poetry readings and things. But I think she was a bit wilder than mm. Plath generally, mm -hmm. I think would be a fair, well, that's my understanding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe building off of that too, um, we're all human. And so what does it mean for you as the author here? What does it mean to study these women and just poets and everyone more broadly to study them as human? I think it's quite important. And I think the reason that it's important is because sometimes the kind of myths that get attached to Plath and Sexton can be quite destructive. And Again, I think the mythologizing that takes place can lead to very lazy stereotyping. So I think it's important that we see Plath and Sexton as relatable women. They were extraordinary writers, um, but they were women and they had their faults and their foibles. And for me, understanding that about them made them much easier to write about because I think to, for example, with I think with Sylvia Plath, if you were to believe her mythology, you'd just be far too intimidated to write about her. Mm. So it's actually it's actually quite a relief to to uh, see them as being uh, at heart normal women who had an extraordinary talent. Yeah, and I'm curious, just because I was just listening and all of the backgrounds that you have with both Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. And I need to m mention to our listeners that the way that Gail, you intersect their lives together, like that it's not just Sylvia Plath in one chapter, then Anne Sexton, like it's this very, very um, complex narrative that you build. And I think I had to remind myself that I'm reading, well, listening in this case, but, you know, reading a biography and not reading historical fiction, because you really do create these complex um, narratives. And it's so beautifully done with the storytelling. And I'm just wondering, how is Gail keeping the psyches of these two literary giants in your head? Because I was just so impressed with how you built um build out the plot so i'm just curious like how did you keep both of their narratives uh <laughs> arranged like did you have an organizational method you were relying on i i did i did have a method um which was 
I had a large notebook and each chapter uh, had, I, I, I opened the notebook and, and each side of the page, one, one was for Sexton and one was for Plath. Mm -hmm. And then I decided what content I wanted to put into each chapter and then wrote a list of each. I have to admit that what tended to happen was that I would write the content that I wanted for, for Anne Sexton first, mm. uh, because I think my knowledge base is not as uh, deep for Sexton as it is for Plath. I've been studying Plath a long time. And so once I'd written what I wanted to include for Anne Sexton, I then drew on my Plath knowledge base to link that up. So it was much easier for me to, to use Plath um, as almost the, the linking person because I'm much more familiar with her life and her work. And it was much easier for me to find the connection via Plath. Um, and then, I, I, then when I was writing, I wrote across the page. Mm. So it would be linking one to the other. So it was backwards and forwards all of the time. Uh, and but but mo I'm terrible when I'm writing a book. Most of it is actually held in my head, so I don't have huge uh, written notes. And I'm trying to alter that because I always feel it's a bit dangerous to keep it all in your head. You know, what if you get something really crucial? Uh, so I I I have very minimal notes, and then the rest of it is coming in mentally as well. So you can imagine what I'm like when I'm writing a book. I'm sort of really distracted and no I don't really have much mental room for anything else well I'm assuming are you writing a book right now or are you taking a I am, break yes oh yes, you are I'm, writing a book I'm, I'm oh. already on another one yes oh are you allowed to divulge to us what you're working on unfortunately the publisher hasn't announced it yet so I can't I think a, I think a, um announcement will be quite soon um it's not connected to Plath but it is connected to a very, very spectacular woman writer. Okay. Oh, that's a good teaser. Okay. <laughs> that's good. We'll, we'll have to like release the announcement right away. But um, uh, I also just, if I can just follow up, how long have you been working on Plath mm -hmm. compared to Anne Sexton? Like when did you first know about Plath? And then when did you know about Anne Sexton's work? So I first read Plath when I was age 13 and had that kind of instant falling in love thing that happened and um, have read her probably every day since I was 13 so that's a, a long time now and then I came to Sexton through Plath mm -hmm. through reading Sexton's memoir of Plath the, bar, the Barfly Ought to Sing and uh, reading the two poems that she included in that memoir Sylvia's Death and Wanting to Die uh, but my real deep introduction to Sexton didn't come until I decided to write this book. And that's when I read Sexton in a lot more detail and most significantly uh, was really lucky to go to her archive um, at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas. Because, I mean, you asked me earlier about, you know, how, how do you enter the psyches of these these women and it's the archives every time mm. it's really 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 difficult to um I just cannot state enough how the archives make you fall into their lives fall into their work fall into the type of women they were and you just get such a rounded picture of them Plath and Sexton both have fantastic archives as well so lucky in that sense Wow. Yeah. Oh, I just love the archive experience. I mean, like I just started as the librarian of a new Whitman library um, with a special collection from um, Susan Tain, who's a private book collector, and I'm in charge of cataloging it. And I'm so excited oh, wow. to like actually allow people to see what I always love, which is going to the archives. And like I've seen Oscar Wilde's editions of Dorian Gray and his manuscript. And I'm like trying to transcribe his one essay uh, from Oxford, which is very difficult because his handwriting is, <laughs> yeah. well, it might just be his formal writing, but I think it's very <laughs> difficult to decipher. But yes, I, I mean, I can't wait to um, even just see 
the Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton mm -hmm. locations that I'm sure, like you've disclosed to us, you've gotten to see their homes. And um, mm -hmm. it does, it matters so much to have that immersive experience. Yeah. It really does. And I think that it's, it's not just the actual content, it's really small details. So things like so many of Sexton's poetry manuscripts and letters had cigarette burns in them because she was wow. obviously just a chain smoker and was wow. just sitting dropping cigarette ash onto her. And her, I, I mean, I do write about this in chapter one of the book, her uh, address book. Yes. Smells really strongly still of nicotine, you know, it's packed into a box and, and I open the box and there's this like waft of nicotine that comes out and then it's really sticky almost sticky with nicotine I was like Ooh. um and just just little features like that um also uh Sexton Archive has a lock of her hair so it's quite interesting to see that and then obviously uh, the Plath Archives has all sorts of personal possessions which are hugely important for for just picking up on their day-to-day -day lives really what what it was like for them and even things like I love in the Plath archives one of her poetry manuscripts has doodling down the side you know and you just imagine it sitting there thinking mm, what comes next well I'll just draw this little cat and this owl and you know so all these really lovely little moments wow yeah that's a wonderful and again it just emphasizes the humanness that you really illustrate throughout. And another, um, so thinking of the archive and just the materiality of these wonderful women, I was also really struck by their daughters and the very present nature of Frida and Linda in this text. Mm -hmm. And so I noticed that Linda has a quote on the back of your book. And so I was just wondering to what extent um, the daughters were involved or not in this writing. <laughs> Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, contact Frida, uh, but I did contact Linda, uh, mainly because uh, I felt that some of the material in the biography was incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you've read it, obviously you'll know what I'm referring to. And I really felt uncomfortable going ahead, publishing things like that without speaking to Linda about it first. And also I was quite keen for her to read anything that I wrote because I wanted to check that she was okay with it. And if she wasn't, I could either remove it or change it. Uh, and Linda was so generous. She, she read the manuscript twice. She was really, really uh, helpful, incredibly supportive. And I think the thing that I loved most about Linda's involvement was that she's obviously the executor of, of her mother's estate. So, she, you know, she, she holds permissions for certain things. But she was very open with me about, you know, even if she didn't, in the end agree with certain things I said mm. that it was my book and I could go ahead and do that anyway mm. and and although actually by the time we'd finished talking about the book I perfectly understood where she was coming from and some of the things that I was maybe a little bit off about uh, and hadn't I think I'd maybe just slightly got my lens a little bit wrong on certain things and she was able to talk me through what they were mm. and uh, and I was really happy to have that input because I think it's made it a much better book. Uh, and uh, and I do believe that Linda is happy with with the, the book as well. And I think she feels that it, it does her mum credit. Uh, and I hope it does. So uh, it, it was really special to have her involved. Wow. Well, and I'm just curious, what is her... I can only imagine, I mean that her being the literary executor of her mother's mm -hmm. estate is not always common of a child who has, you know, um, a very prominent um, author, uh, parental figure, especially, right, depending on 
the relationship of the child to the parent. Like I know Frida, I think has a very different or might not have been, like you said, Gail, you don't know if you would have wanted, like would Frida have read the manuscript that you wrote? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Like is Frida very involved in Plath biographies or scholarship? I think that um, Frida is involved in the sense that she's the executor of the estate. So in that sense, uh, she has to be. And and I think that I think I felt a little bit with Frida like she probably had her plate quite full with things that were going on at that time. Uh, there, there was the it was the release of the Harriet Rosenstein material that came to light. And I imagined that that must have been, and as it transpired, was uh, pretty shocking and quite upsetting for Frida to to deal with some of the material that came out of that. Mm -hmm. And I just made the decision that possibly, like, sometimes people's plates are full enough, you know, Mm. and um, I doubt that she would have wanted to think here's another book about my mom happening. And uh, right. and I, I don't think I put anything in the book that was particularly controversial. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't really um, feel that I could have said anything that would have upset Frida in any way. Yeah. Uh, so I think she had much more personal issues to be dealing with than, uh, than you know, sort of reading a manuscript of my book, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, did you and Linda actually like dissect her mother's poetry? Like, did you interpret, did she have certain interpretations of her mom's poetry? Yeah, I mean, she helped me with certain, um, with the understanding of certain things. And she also uh, pointed me to look at certain poems when I was dealing with particular issues. And so all of that um, advice is is there in the book. Uh, But it's interesting because Linda was made executor of her mum's estate while her mum was still alive. So Linda was 21 when oh. Anne Sexton signed, signed her up to be executor of the estate. And then obviously um, her mother died shortly after that. So this is something that Linda has, has had the responsibility of her entire adult life, which wow. is, you know, quite something. And, and towards the end of the book, I do reflect a little bit on how it must be both for Linda and Frida to be the daughter of Mm -hmm. these literary giants, you know, and in Frida's case, both of her parents. And how, I don't know how you can kind of negotiate something like that. So I I feel as a scholar, it's about being as sensitive as possible to that, you know. Mm. These are stories that are really crucial and important for literary history. But there are still people alive who are involved in these stories and we have to have some kind of moral compass when it comes to that. Absolutely. I think um, whenever I teach Sylvia Plath, I always bring in Frida's poems about, um, I think she has a poem, My Mother's Readers, and it compares a lot of scholarship of Sylvia Plath to vultures. And so I think that speaks to a lot of what you're saying, Gail, about like the moral compass, like um, recognizing the humanity of these authors and also of ourselves too so I think that's always something I'm trying to consider is like how do we responsibly and with care engage with these poets yeah and I think as well sometimes I I think as well sometimes when you're in the the archives you can discover something or find something that you're quite surprised by Um, but I always feel that just because you know something, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to publish it. Mm. Um, and that sometimes it's better to wait and sometimes it's better to, for example, not invade people's privacy if they're still alive. You know, not everybody wants their private life publishing in a book and, you know, hanging out for everyone to see. And so, again, it's just about being a bit responsible, I think, mm. about things like that. Yeah, it sounds like something that happens a lot with um, actors' children and the type of celebrity idea about paparazzi or um, this negotiation of your public and private life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But like you're saying, with Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, there is that there could be a new discovery. Like it's a little different than someone who's in Hollywood, right? Like, I mean, their material usually is out there in the film or television genre. I mean, you might find some things out about their life, but it is, I, I just love the way you describe about like how there's a way to be a compassionate scholar and an empathetic scholar. And like that really comes through in just how every sentence you write, I can tell you really were wanting to especially break down the myth of two female poets being combatant, right? Like that's, or that was the myth like I was taught was even especially with Adrian Rich that, um, and I'm kind of thinking, is that who Gail's working on? I know you can't tell us, but uh, no, no, it no? Isn't. okay. Because <laughs> yeah. I do, I love, love Adrian Rich. Um, but I was always taught, oh, Adrian Rich, Anne Sexton, and Sylvia Plath were all sparring with each other. But right again, that's that patriarchal construction of their lives. And it's actually, you know, a way to separate them from each other. But I know Kelsey and I were also talking about um, Gwendolyn Brooks. And I think Gwendolyn Brooks was up for, had won, I think Kelsey had the told Pulitzer me. Prize. Yeah, mm -hmm. had won the Pulitzer Prize and like was also, you know, part of this Milu of poetry that was being mm -hmm. published. And I was kind of curious, Gail, about how race kind of like, do you think that, and I know we can't always work in hypotheticals, but do you think that if Sylvia Plath or Anne Sexton were a woman of color mm -hmm. and like had a similar trajectory in their life, would it be a very different um, story to be telling? Like, would it have been that same, would their lives have worked out the same or even the communities that they were a part of? I think the depressing answer to that is that we probably would never have heard of them. Mm. And that is a kind of very, uh, I think that is a depressing reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you, I, I mean, my book talks about ways in which certain things in publishing have changed uh, and some ways in which certain things haven't. And although there has been movement in certain areas, particularly when it comes to um, women and race and publishing, it's it's nowhere near a level playing field even today. It, it's it really isn't. And so I think uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it, I, I just think we would. In fact, when you look at statistics for mental health and, for example, black women in America, it's likely that somebody like Plath would have been locked up and never been let out again if she had been a black woman, you know, and the kind of levels of uh, diagnosis for schizophrenia that were slapped on black women. And so, yeah, depressing back then, uh, some improvement, but still depressing today. Too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of how Toni Morrison negotiates that with mental health in Beloved, like plays how like the mental health or even the loss of a child mm -hmm. and blackness tied to what Toni Morrison does with the Gothic. I mean, I'm such a fan of Toni Morrison's playing in the dark um, mm -hmm. essay. And like, if there's darkness as a theme, well, what does whiteness look like? And mm -hmm. I don't know, it's something I use with my students a lot because, you know, racial categories, um, you know, you can turn the lens. And I, you know, just think that I'm so grateful that you really do look at the ways that Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath have such interesting literary connections mm -hmm. and that they are part of that Robert Lowell's workshop, but also that there are other writers in this period, like even you know, because I do think it's very, very tempting to fall into the Ted Hughes narrative, but 
um, or even like what um, he did might have done or not done to Sylvia Plath. But I thought the way that you handled Ted Hughes, it was just so well executed. I mean, that's all I really, how I can phrase it. Um, yeah. Well, I think the most important thing to, to think is that this wasn't a book about Ted Hughes. Right. Uh, so Ted Hughes was, uh, he, he appeared in the book because, you know, for, for six and a half years, he was married to Sylvia Plath. But this, this was a book about two women poets and the, the focus was on those two women. Uh, and the same with, you know, Anne Sexton's husband, Kale. It, it wasn't a book about Sexton's husband. Mm -hmm. uh, and although both marriages are, are touched on and spoken about, really, really, really important to bring that kind of female lived experience right to the front. And for that to almost not eclipse everything else, but make sure that that was the dominant narrative of the book. Mm hmm which is wonderful. It's a very like feminist forward text in of itself. So like exploring Sexton's relationship to the waves of feminism and how Sylvia Plath kind of just, just missed it. Um, it's very exciting to see kind of like the centering of lived experience of these women that did not get their due during their lifetime or were not respected to the degree that like Ted Hughes was. And, um, and that's always a question that I get asked when I teach Plath is like, how do people study Ted Hughes knowing of Sylvia Plath's lived experience? And so if you have any advice on how to respond to that question, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm far from a, from a Ted Hughes expert, I have to say. Um, I, I really only know about Hughes through Plath. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously I've, I've read his work and I've read some biographies of Hughes. Uh, and I think that his reception, like Platts, has probably changed over the years too. Right. Uh, I, I can't speak about in the US, obviously, but in the UK, I think, again, he has gone through various representations and revisions. And, and, and that's as, as kind of interesting as anything else, really. So I guess it might be quite interesting for... Uh, for your students to maybe look at some of those representations and mm -hmm. they can maybe unravel and unpack what they mean and how they um, how they can attach to uh, how people have read Hughes differently over the years. No, that's wonderful. We usually also look at Ted Hughes and Plath in relationship to her gravesite. Mm -hmm. And so I think I actually just stumbled across a photo of you at Plath's gravesite like a couple decades ago, because it's such a um, significant space that is indicative of her life and authorial legacy. And I love that in the book, you in include so many like places and photographs of where the the physical spaces that these women occupied. I thought that was so incredible. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, visiting the graves was and always is a, quite a poignant moment. And mm. uh, I, I've been to Plath's grave many, many times because I don't live a huge distance away from it. It's only about two hours away from, from where I live. But I've only been to Sexton's grave the once, and I went there three months after being in her archive mm -hmm. and that was really quite something <laughs> yeah so I the the only time that I visited um Sexton's grave was January 2020 just before the pandemic happened and that was uh, three months after I'd been in her archives in Texas and that was very overwhelming and very emotional <laughs> and uh, I felt uh, I felt quite upset actually when I got there because it was um, yeah it was a culmination of lots of things and there's always something uh, moving about going to somebody's grave uh, but it's also a very very beautiful grave as well and when I went it was covered in snow wow. there'd been quite heavy snowfall in Boston so it just everywhere looks stunning and it's a really beautiful uh, cemetery as well. So, but there was, yeah, uh, there was a, a, a really lovely uh, little handwritten note that somebody had left on the grave and then there was a rosary oh. hanging over the end. And 
Beautiful. Where's her? Where is the grave site? It's in Jamaica Plain, just outside oh. of Boston. Okay. Which is another link with Plath, of course, because Plath spent her first couple of years in Jamaica Plain. So. Yeah, so interesting. Well, and right before the pandemic, actually, March, right? A as the pandemic days. was happening, a few days, Kelsey and I actually, that's when Kelsey had put together a Plath panel for a conference for um, the Northeast Modern Language Association. Um, okay. And I was attending to talk about queering, mm -hmm. like queering Whitman's poetics, because that's, you know, my main research field. But um, Kelsey and I were literally a few blocks, we had done work at the Boston Library, and we were right around the corner from the Ritz. So right, okay. it's just so interesting how all these paths, they do. Yeah. There's so many reverberations of yeah. connections. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I know we have a few more minutes and there was just something I really wanted to bring up when I was with you, Gail, which is that I thought the feminist lens was just such a well executed way of looking at even the problematics. I don't know if that's how, yeah, I would phrase it that maybe, phrase it in that way, especially with um, the abuse that Sexton and Plath had gone through and even um, with Linda, right? I mean, there's a lot of layers there, um, mm -hmm. but even when it comes to representations of Jewishness or race, um, Right. There's ghosts or hauntings, um, specters in Sexton and Plath with their writing. And I think that it was just so interesting how you explain that they're not like you weren't labeling them as feminists. Like you were saying there is ways to read their work as feminist, right. but it's not that they we're necessarily claiming an identity. And maybe that's where I see Adriana Rich is different in the sense that she mm. um, was openly queer. She was a lesbian. She talked about queerness. She wrote a lot of essays about it and like was really part of that second wave feminist movement. Mm. And I think mm. it's just so interesting to try to think complexly about that because Right, they're female poets, but it doesn't mean that all female poets fit a certain political ideology. Like you said, like you're always part of an ideology and you can't always get away mm -hmm. from it. And there is, like I constantly do see like the patriarchal construction is peering around their shoulders in a way in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, there's just this, like like all rebels, uh, there's a kind of a bit of a ping pong effect where you can pull away to a certain extent, but then you're pulled back again. And you could see that happening with both both of them. I mean, Plath and feminism is a difficult one because she died before second wave feminism really kicked off. Uh, so we don't really know how she would have responded that at all you read a poem like the applicant and you think oh surely plath would have lapped up second wave feminism but then we don't know because when you look at sexton's response to second wave feminism which completely flawed me i mean i thought sexton would have been totally on board with this and yet she wasn't you know she was she had a lot of reservations of, about the feminist movement so that threw me a little bit uh because it wasn't what I expected. And I think as well, what was what was also interesting about Sexton that I touch on in the book is that her, her sort of reluctance to somehow acknowledge her bisexuality as well, that mm. she was kind of frightened, frightened about the feelings that she had when she became involved with another woman. And she was frightened what that meant. And it almost seemed like she was very scared to take a step away from heterosexuality and go into something that was a bit less uh, familiar to her and uh, perhaps blurred some boundaries that she wasn't all too familiar with. And although I look at, 
at the historical moment for that and talk about why particularly, you know, the lesbian experience probably wouldn't have been publicly a very happy or comfortable one for her. It's still interesting that in some areas she was happy to not care and put herself out there. And then in other areas, she was she was understandably much more reluctant. And some of the the letters that I that I read in the archive between her and and the woman that she was involved with, you know, you can sense the fear in Sexton. She doesn't want to, she doesn't want to admit her attraction particularly, and she doesn't want to think that there's anything erotic going on. I mean, she's trying to mm. downplay it as some kind of intense friendship. And uh, although, you know, eventually she has to and, and, and does kind of admit that, um, that she is attracted to this woman and that the, the relationship does become sexual. But it isn't really something that she's open about, I don't think. That's so interesting. Because my first mm-hmm. poem that I read was by Anne Sexton was Cinderella and the subverting she does about domesticity. So like it is really going against that idea of the housewife and the pressures. Um, But in a way, it's interesting that Adriana Rich writes about compulsory heterosexuality and it kind of sounds like Anne Sexton was maybe a test subject for it or even you know, kind of fit that, like you're saying, Gail, afraid to like fully approach bisexuality and claim the identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I think we're, we're almost, we're out of time, but um, this is an amazing. A, this is just such an incredible conversation, Gail. And um, I don't know, is there anything that we haven't <laughs> you know uh asked you or haven't you know you've really wanted to open up about about your book I don't think so no I mean it's been a great conversation I really enjoyed it and it's gone everywhere as well so it's you know we've covered lots of things um and I just I mean thank you so much for reading and listening to the book and also for for inviting me on here as well which has been great well thank you so much and of course thank you to Kelsey for joining me and I know for having me. Kelsey and I um, are going to have our students listen to this episode. Um, I'm actually, I know Kelsey's already been teaching Plath. I'm soon teaching Plath, and then I'm going to be teaching Anne Sexton's poem about Sylvia Plath. So oh, okay. this is definitely, you this know, my brilliant. this is an excellent fit. So um, well, to all our students as well. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Because they're listening now, right? That's what I like about Sexton on. Yes. Yes. So, you know, and for all of you out there, please get your hands or get your fingers touching your audio book app. um, Three Martini Afternoons at at the Ritz, The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. It is incredibly well done. And like we were saying, it's a biography, but it's such a going against the grain type of biography it's yes. uh it is not dry like, <laughs> just <laughs> there is so much to gail crowther's writing so thank you gail this was mm-hmm. such a joy it was incredible so to much. interview you okay. thank you have a great day thank you so much for listening to the ivory tower boiler room the ivory tower boiler room consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. I thank them all because without their help, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room would not be what it is. Also, please do donate and help support our public humanities mission. So the easiest way to donate is go to the bottom of the show notes, click that support link, and That's your easiest way to donate. We really appreciate it because we are all volunteers here within the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Please, while you're at it, follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter page at Ivory Boiler Room. Thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames for Loverman, the music that you heard at the opening of this episode and 
the music that we'll now conclude with. Hope you all are staying safe and healthy out there. <laughs>